This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Many states have suspended regulations that hampered public and private responses to COVID-19, and they did so with remarkable speed. It raises the question, were they needed at all? As states begin to reopen, what regulations should simply be done away with permanently? Matt Mitchell with the Mercatus Center describes a framework for judging regulations that have no business coming back. Regular listeners will have heard lots of discussions here about uh, state-level regulation and how much of that was either suspended, uh, some of it was done away with, some of it was relaxed um, in the wake of this pandemic. So um, how have you, what have you seen uh, that you think was was notable in this uh, period? Well, it's pretty extraordinary, both in terms of the scope uh, and the depth of the types of rules and regulations that have been suspended. So, um, you know, just the breadth, think about it. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform, among many others, have been uh, trying to list and keep up with all the regulations that have been suspended or eased. Uh, their their list now is up to 400 um, and many of these are, are somewhat minor rules. Uh, so, you know, the USDA has sus- said that they are going to allow some flexibility in terms of when, uh, children can be fed, uh, during certain, uh, federal pro, for, from federal programs, um, school lunch programs and, and the like. Uh, that's relatively minor. Um, on the other hand, there's some really in, well entrenched regulations that have been around for decades that, uh, you know, reformers have been trying to push for, uh, to ease for quite a long time. And those are going, those are being eased. So, for example, 22 states have moved to ease or suspend, uh, what are called certificate of need laws in healthcare. Um, so it's really, it's amazing. You know, um, scope of practice rules, uh, at the state level are being suspended, barriers to telehealth. Uh, New Mexico is uh, allowing Canadian nurses to pre- provide care uh, here in the state. So, you know, it's it's pretty amazing the the um, number of regulations and the types of regulations that are being eased right now. So going forward uh, and this the, when you take a take stock of how quickly a lot of this stuff was suspended, of course, uh, President Trump had a uh, Rose Garden uh, presser where he just announced a whole lot of stuff is just going away temporarily at the federal level. Um, the speed with which a lot of this has been done away with, I think is very, is extremely notable. So, mm-hmm. so going forward, how should we judge what regulations ought to stay away and what's the low hanging fruit of getting rid of some of these regulations entirely? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it helps to to point out that so many regulations get basically zero scrutiny once they're on the books. So they they show up, and um, there's this regulatory accumulation problem that happens where you know both the federal and the state governments try to do their due diligence when they formulate new regulations, but they do nothing to evaluate existing rules on the book. Um, and that's, uh, you know, problematic, of course, because 
you know, when you're evaluating a, a proposed rule, that's exactly the time when you have the least amount of information about how it's going to work. But a rule that's been around for 30 years, uh, that may have been studied by economists and other social scientists, um, th- you know, we know, we know a fair amount about how those rules work. So, um, you know, what we propose is set up a system that systematically uh, evaluates, makes use of a lot of this social science research, and also makes use of this experiment that's happening right now in the suspension of these rules to, to take a retrospective view of these things and say, you know, do we really need these? And, f- in, you know, in my view, the types of rules that we should be the most suspicious of are those rules that protect special interests from competition or provide them some sort of uh, regulatory privilege, particularly at the expense of the broad public. So uh, uh, there has been some delegation from uh, FDA to Mm -hmm. states. Are states, in your view, interested in maintaining the ability to, say, develop their own diagnostic tests or uh, other uh, issues where the feds would normally govern uh, but states have taken up governance of some of these issues. You know, uh, it, it, the the Madisonian in me says any politician is is happy to accumulate some power, although they're usually a little bit reluctant to take responsibility for uh, bad things that happen. So um, it really is probably going to depend on the the temperament of some of these state policymakers. It, it's interesting to to tell that story of how that happened. So you know, the the FDA just. Uh, drop the ball so significantly uh, in the CDC as well, of course, uh, with the testing uh, um, in the United States. And by some estimates, we were behind by at least six weeks or more because of those uh, failures. And it, eventually, as a result of that, the FDA just threw up their hands and they said, OK, we're going to allow the states to handle um, approval of new tests because we just can't keep up with it. And we obviously screwed up so much. So it'll be interesting. I, I don't know whether states are going to be jealous of that prerogative and going to try to maintain it or not uh, once the crisis um, abates a little bit. In, in terms of public opinion, um, when these rules and when they're people are trying to reinstate them or uh, fight to end the suspension of of certain of these regulations, we have this case that is ongoing right now that is a pretty strong case for not bringing a lot of these regulations back and that people will just say, well, what if there's another global pandemic? Yeah, that's right. And this is this goes for rules that uh you know are touch people's lives in a very uh you know simple easy way you know take take for example um the idea that you can get alcohol delivered to your house um many people are are made aware of this now um the idea that you can um distillers can should be allowed to easily and uh convert from making um hard alcohol to making hand sanitizer uh you, What's really remarkable about this is that in a, as people go about their lives in a normal day, you know, they come in contact with all sorts of regulations, but they don't know it. And that's because really what, for the most part, the way a regulation affects you is it limits, uh, it, it limits you in ways that you don't even appreciate or realize. Nobody knew that they that they could have alcohol delivered to their house, right? Nobody knew that the nurse practitioner down the street 
could be able to treat them and let alone treat them in a telehealth setting without even having to necessarily um, physically interact with them. But people don't know that. So what's really interesting about this experiment right now is that people are becoming aware of these rules um, in a way that they never were before. Um, and so I, I suspect there's going to be a fair amount of public pressure um, to keep a lot of these rules off the books. Uh, d- don't bring them back. If they didn't make sense during the pandemic, um, th- they're certainly not going to make sense if the, pa- if the pandemic comes back in the fall, and they may not make sense in regular times either. A lot of the regulations you just talked about, customer-facing uh, issues where there is a there is a direct connection where people can actually see the benefits of of not having certain regulation on the books, but that that doesn't account for a lot of it. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's where there's real subtle things. So uh, I mentioned earlier certificate of need laws. Um, these are rules that are found in 35 states in the District of Columbia. Most people don't know that they exist. Um, these are rules that say if you are a healthcare provider and you want to open or expand uh, your facility, you want to get a new bed or buy an MRI machine or start offering a drug or alcohol abuse treatment, um, you have to go before a regulator and ask for permission. And in the process of asking for permission, the regulator is not going to be evaluating your uh, safety record or your qualifications. Instead, all they're going to be doing is second-guessing your claim that you think that your community could benefit from this service. And, and, and in many the, ca- in many cases, in Certificate of Need specifically, you have to go to the incumbent and ask them if they want to provide this service first. And they, yeah, have to that's say, right. they have to effectively say, no, we don't want to provide this. Uh, and yes, we recognize the need. That's right. They're, they're invited to come before the commission and, uh, or regulator and uh, offer reasons for why they would prefer not to have a, have a competitor. Sometimes the, the board itself is comprised of members uh, that you would be competing against, uh, hospital uh, association members or um, other providers. Uh, so it's really controversial. But um, and and it's been associated with lower quality care, uh, higher cost of care, and less access to care. So it really does affect uh, us as patients. But the vast majority of us had no idea that these exist. I can see uh, potentially in the future. Not to end on a down note here, but I can see a massive new wave of regulation coming in the wake of uh, this pandemic, particularly with respect to. Uh, restaurants and uh, how they associate with customers. Um, I could see meat processing plants facing a new wave of regulation in terms of how they handle product uh, and how that gets moved to market. Grocery stores, pretty much any place where people uh, congregate, even uh, just loosely associating with one another, standing in the same aisle of a grocery store, for example. Um, is to what extent should we be concerned about about that and disallowing these individual private uh, actors to make their own rules? Well, I do think we should be concerned about that. Uh, you know, your listeners, I'm sure many of them are are uh, familiar with the economic historian Bob Higgs, um, whose thesis in his book Crisis and Leviathan is that essentially uh, a crisis is the health of the state. Uh, whenever crises arise, whether it's uh, financial, economic, um, uh, international um, conflict, 
he he was he didn't write about pandemics, but this is certainly fits that. The usual rule, of course, is for the state to grow, and in many dimensions, we're seeing that. There's a lot of new. Uh, uh, there, I think there's something like uh, eight or nine new facilities at the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's a lot of new fiscal programs being set up at the federal and the state level. Um, and I think you're right. We should anticipate that there's going to be calls for new regulations. What's unique about this is that unlike other crises, uh, our previous regulations are making it difficult to deal with the current crisis. And so we're actually seeing some relaxation of rules. But this is, of course, alongside the um, you know stay-at-home orders <laughs> issued by most governors. So we, we uh, it's just a weird time where you have this extraordinary um you know, confluence of both reg- uh, regulation and deregulation. Um, but, you know, one thing I would note in terms of the relaxation of the, uh, or, you know, in terms of the imposition of those new rules, it's sometimes difficult to um, figure out, uh, attribute our changes in activity to either government or culture. And in my view, you know, a whole lot of the things that we think of as like, you know, federal or state, I guess not federal, but state lockdowns, you know, we were voluntarily doing a lot of that stuff before. Um, you know, the NBA, of course, was the first to, to uh, you know, major organization to cancel its activities and that sort of snowballed into others. It looked to me around that time that basically um, a lot of Americans were voluntarily taking a whole lot of uh, sensible actions, some maybe a little bit overreactions, but some pretty sensible actions to essentially self-regulate. Um, and so it would not surprise me if even without these rules, um, people continued to stay about five or six feet away from one another in grocery stores, at least until we get um, a, a good vaccine and, and a little bit more herd immunity. Um, you know, don't second guess all those voluntary uh, private governance uh, mechanisms. When we tally up all the regulations that ought to be seriously reconsidered in the wake of a of a global pandemic, what uh, what has Mercatus done? Well, what we're suggesting is what we call a fresh start initiative, and we're not the only ones who have suggested this. And a number of um, uh, folks that are smarter than I have suggested something like this. But the basic idea here is uh, don't automatically put these rules back on the books. Um, Come up with a process that systematically evaluates them. And unlike the normal um, regulatory process where a rule is is kept on the books, and if you think about uh, suspending it, the special interests have an outsized uh, ability to to block that. reverse sort of that uh, dynamic and give the general interest um, a a fighting chance here. And so what we suggest is that um, states and the federal government follow the same kind of principles that have allowed um, special interest privileges to be taken away or suspended or eliminated in the past. So we we suggest following things like uh, the, the same basic mechanism that was adopted um, in the Base Realignment and Closing Commission. Um, by the way, you also see this same kind of logic in fast-track t- trade negotiation and other types of um, uh, deregulations. But the idea here is allow... Um, legislators to cast a conspicuous vote for the general interest saying we're we're suspending or eliminating bad rules but then give them some cover and allow somebody else uh, expert commission um you can follow the, the uh, what a british uh, columbia um 
deregulation effort in the early 2000s did, which they had a, actually an executive level um, uh, push for deregulation. But you allow somebody else to uh, examine the rules and uh, come up with specific recommendations of which rules should go. And then allow Congress, allow those those rules suspensions to take effect unless Congress takes some sort of um, positive action to oppose it. In some sense, that sounds like an omnibus bill. That is to say, I don't support all of this, but in general, uh, I think people will be better off if this passes versus not passing. Usually it's used in the context of a big ball of spending. The, that is not separated out. It's either up or down, and the real fight is what gets in it. Yeah, that's right. So um, it, it's uh, it, essentially taking. You're absolutely right. A, the a tool that is often used to increase the size of government, which is log rolling, but but uh, do it in the opposite direction. So um, Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State under uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Big ups, Cordell Hull. Yeah, he's really a unsung hero. Uh, so you know, he's it was a Southern Democrat who was a passionate free trader, and his he's a former former member of Congress. And his insight was that the problem with trade policy at that time was that it was in the hands of Congress. And the typical congressman, you know, was happy to to was sort of a mild or moderate free trader. They were happy to get rid of uh, tariffs and quotas, but certainly not for whatever was made in their district. And so, what he suggested is let's give the president the ability to uh, negotiate reciprocal tariff reduction agreements with other countries, um, and we will accept them up or down. We're not going to second guess that. And what that allows them to do is to is to go back to their constituents and say, "Look, I, you know, essentially I log rolled. I I want overall free trade. I'm sorry, I wasn't able to pre- preserve the protection for what's made in our district. Sorry about that. Um, but I I really tried, and you can blame the president. So it gives them a little bit of cover. Um, and it, it you know your insight about this log rolling is exactly what's happened is when you package all these things together, the net benefit outweighs you know whatever uh, special interest imposed cost political cost can can um, befall the the member. Um, so it, it had just to give you some some quantification of how of how it uh, happened, and there were other things, of course, the GATT and uh, WTO after that. Uh, um, were also extremely important reforms. But in 1929, the average tariff on dutyable imports was uh, 29%. Uh, and I'm sorry, 59%. And now it's below 5%. So that's an extraordinary um, you know, increase in economic freedom that few of us appreciate. How does that work at the state level? Is that pretty? Is that a is that a typical process at the state level? I realize it is with spending, but uh, with uh, any type of uh, reduction in the size or scope of government? Well, um, there are have been a few examples. Uh, there's not a lot of examples of, of setting up deregulatory commissions, but there have been things kind of that, that have some of these characteristics. I think one of my favorite examples uh, is I, I mentioned it earlier I, is not from the U.S. states, but from Brit- British Columbia. So in the early 2000s, um, British Columbia had acquired this reputation as just a, a, a totally overregulated state. And so there was a liberal uh, candidate for premiership who ran on a platform of cutting red tape. And one of the first things that they did 
was they appointed a, a cabinet level minister of deregulation whose entire responsibility was to identify which actual rules should go away. And then they set up a, a, a goal where they, we were going to eliminate um, up to 30% of, of rules. We were going to count and quantify the rules, which we think is also a, you know, an important aspect here. And uh, they set in, a, I think, one of the first um, one-in-two-out rules. If you want to have a new rule, you've got to, you've got to identify two others to, to eliminate. Um, and it was pretty... It was remarkably successful. Over the course of a few years, they managed to eliminate almost 40% of all their rules. Um, and what this did was it has the same type of characteristic as a BRAC commission and as uh, Cordell Hull's um, uh, trade, uh, fast-track trade negotiation is it basically allows you know the premier to take the credit for eliminating rules, but he pushes it off on the, you know, the specific cabinet member who's and and his deputies and and the, those that he's working with to identify which actual rules are going to go. Um, so it, it essentially was a log roll in that in that sense where we're going to uh, we're, we're going to keep our eye on the big goal, which is just reducing all rules. Um, but when it comes down to specifics, uh, let's take some cover for that. Matt Mitchell is a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.